Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. My name is Mike. I, I get to be one of the, the pastors here at Radiant. We're, um, we're going to continue today our, a series we're calling Redemption, um, looking at stories from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, the second book of the Old Testament. Um, did anybody bring their handy-dandy books with them? Wow, look at you guys. A pluses. So there's no surprises here. You can kind of follow the series along. You know where we're going, and the next one is the Red Sea. Jared made a great booklet for us with these cool emblems. and uh, There's a lot of men here that showed up today because the emblem kind of looks like bacon for the Red Sea. So <laughs> me, and, me and Jared and I were really happy about that because if we had eight weeks in the series, I would teach on how God redeemed bacon. I just think it's worth talking about. So sorry, dudes. We're not talking about bacon today. We're talking about the Red Sea Crossing. And the whole time we're going through this series in the book of Exodus, we're, we're talking about redemption and how redemption is deliverance, it's freedom, it's God setting a people free, uh, specifically in the, with, through the Israelites. Um, redemption is also ransom because that freedom costs something and God uh, pays for their freedom. But redemption doesn't stop with just freedom and us being paid to be free. Uh, paid so that we can live free. But redemption continues in renewal. Redemption is God renewing us into his image. And uh, most of the book of Exodus is that, God renewing a people, making them his people, uh, teaching them to worship him. And that's a a big part of redemption. And um, today we're going to kind of turn the corner from that deliverance and ransom uh, part of redemption and kind of move into how redemption is renewal. We saw a couple weeks ago how the pro- we saw the problem. The Israelites were in slavery. They were in bondage. They couldn't leave. They were slaves to Egypt. And we saw how God uh, heard their cries. He was with them. He stepped in to, to do something about it. And then last week, we, we, we heard the story of the Passover, where God sent plagues against Egypt and made a way for Israel to leave Egypt. That was kind of the big dramatic part of them stepping out of Egypt finally, where they had been slaves. And today we're, we're, we're moving into the, the story of the Red Sea, probably a pretty well-known story. If you know any of these stories, um, this is probably one of those uh, famous images of the Red Sea crossing. And as we go through these stories, we, we want to continually zoom in on these Old Testament stories see what God's doing in them. And then we want to also zoom out to, to get a perspective on what Christ is doing today in a particular way, in a personal way, in our life, in your life, through, uh, in Christ. And also what God's been up to since time began. He's been redeeming the world, redeeming people since he started this thing. And he's going to keep doing it until the end, until the culmination, until we're with him in glory, in his presence. That's our promised land. It's not like he's sending us to a zip code. 
He's sending us, he's bringing us into his presence. He's marking us with his presence. And what's so cool is God continually talks to the people of God through this story of Exodus about the promised land. And they're way, they're not even close to it. I mean, it's going to be years and years before they see it and he keeps talking about it. And it's not because he's mean and he's just hanging it out in front of them. But he wants them to start thinking about living free, living in his presence, being his people. So as we talk about these different stories, I want to continually remind us to engage our hearts, our minds on what is true about God and that he is leading us as his people into his presence forever. And um, today's story in the New Testament, Paul uses this story, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, to actually um, symbolize baptism, how, how Christians are baptized and, and marked with God and, and, and identify with him in his death and Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. So I just want to put in a tiny plug for baptism. The sermon's not about baptism, but we're going to be baptizing people um, here at the church on Easter Sunday, um, which is a great Sunday to do that. Um, it'll be a lot of fun. So if, if you've uh, identified with Christ and you, you've put your faith in him recently or come back to him recently, we're, um, the, the next step for you is to publicly identify, him with, identify with him in baptism. And we're going to be doing that on Easter Sunday. So if you're interested, you can sign up at the Connect table and put your name down. And we'll contact you and tell you about what it's like. Um, Robert there has been asking me for like three months to be baptized. So this one's for you, Robert. You're getting baptized. Um, yeah, we at least have one and it's going to be awesome. And if we only have one, I'll make them stick around for the second service. And so <laughs> the second service can see it. <clears throat> so today, the crossing of the Red Sea, the the the... I don't know if you want to call it a theme, a title, whatever. We're going to be looking at shame and how shame marks us. Shame, the effects and identity that we wear because of sin, because of suffering. And how God is releasing people from shame in this story. And the verse that, that for me just resonates with when, when we're talking about shame, it comes out of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5 says that if anyone's in Christ... He's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. It is so succinct, so beautiful, so simple. And yet it's so profound how God in Christ makes us a new creation. Absolutely new, not 90% new. But we're new creations in him. So let's pray as we, as we open God's word. Jesus, you're faithful to the end, just like we sang, God. You've started this thing, Lord. You, you, you uh, authored this faith in us and you're going to finish it, Lord. You're going to perfect it. And Holy Spirit, would you lead us into all truth today? Pray that my words would be from you, Lord. We, we, we don't want to hear from me. <laughs> Lord, we, we want to hear from you, Jesus. So come speak to us, Holy Spirit. Come capture our attention. Come release us, free us from the identity that we're wearing of shame, God. Would you do a work that only you can do? Lord, you can do the impossible. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Amen. I, uh, <clears throat> Valentine's Day... We just celebrated a year ago on Valentine's Day, 2012. I started that day uh, by crying a lot, which is not completely normal for me. 
And in fact, I would call it weeping. My, my face, I remember, was buried in the carpet in my kitchen, and I hate that carpet. It's so nasty. And I was there crying into that carpet, making it nastier. I vividly remember that moment, and it's something I, I don't want to ever forget. And I, I was trying to find an eloquent... I, I was sitting, laying there that morning, at, finally broken about my shame and my sin. Like, finally I got it. And to understand that moment, I got to back the story up for you because, and there's no real eloquent way to say this. I tried to find a way. But I used to look at pornography a lot. It is something that marked my life before I knew Jesus and even after I started following Jesus as a young man. I honestly thought it was something that I would live with for the rest of my life. I hated it. I hated myself. I, I knew that God had, would loved me and had saved me, but I, I felt dirty. I felt you know, like I wasn't really saved. And I, I took that into college, the first couple of years of college. You know, I, I wrestled with it. I can't even tell you how many times I went forward to have my pastor pray for me about it. And it was a hopeless fight in a lot of ways. I'd, in many ways, I'd just given up hope. I just had kind of resigned that, I'm going to live with this. And I can't remember the day. I wish I did because it would be more dramatic. But, but God, in a radical way, removed me from that sin. And I, I can't even, I think it was like my second year of college, I, I remember. So much to the point where I didn't really believe it. I was like, could, could it really be gone? But from that moment on, I experienced Years just of freedom and walked into some great years of serving Jesus in the church. I met my wife and married her, became a dad. And that, that was a distant memory for me. It was just long gone, something I thanked God for, something that I was somewhat prideful about, that you know I had conquered that inconquerable sin. And in... Um, what was it, October, September 2011, I, I found myself starting to drift and faced with temptations I hadn't faced in 10 years. And it was subtle. And I, I found myself gripped with, with desires, lust, uh, dirty thoughts that I thought were long, long gone. And I was embarrassed, ashamed, whatever you want to call it, hated it. But I fed it. But I, I convinced myself that I, I wasn't um, really sinning like I used to sin. Because I started looking at pictures, but they weren't, the women weren't naked. So I thought, well, it's just a little bit of lust. It's not really pornography. It's not what I used to deal with. And this went on for a couple weeks. And I tolerated it. And I thought I had it, a, a grip on it. I don't need to tell anybody about it. I got this. It's not like it used to be. They're not really naked. And I completely fooled myself into just getting uh, just covered in sin and shame that, that, that I thought was years behind me. And it, I don't know, it, it hit me finally that 
that I was sinning and sinning bad. And this wasn't just a small thing. And it wasn't something I could control or fix. And so I found some, some guys, some friends who love me, know me, call me higher. And I, I confessed it. I laid it out to them. I told them what I'd been up to for the, those few weeks. They prayed with me. I deleted the app that I was using. It was an app that a lot of you use, Instagram. I haven't used it since. And I put it behind me. I was like, oh, those feelings are gone. It was a, 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 a release that happened. Like I was like, oh, good. It's done. I took care of it. I, I, I thought I dodged a bullet, you know, because I didn't get into that sin like I, I had known before. And so four or five months go by, and it brings us to Valentine's Day, 2011. And a couple days before that, Katie and I went on a date here. We had a date night at church. Some of you were probably there. And the sermon, that was about how we hide things from our spouses. We have secrets that we keep. And all the crazy reasons we think it's better for us to keep those secrets and how they slowly destroy our marriage. And I, I, I felt found out. The Holy Spirit put his hand on that sin in my life that I had dealt with, confessed, got rid of four months ago. And I saw for the first time, or accepted for the first time, that my sin was against my wife, not against those friends that I called. So Katie and I had a terrible date that night. Um, we went to the Habit Burger, and I wasn't feeling like eating. And so she asked, so, got any secrets? <sighs> so after I threw up, I, uh, no. Um, so th- there we are in public, and I jump. I just let her know, yeah, got a secret four months ago. This is what's going on, and I'm sorry but I talked to these guys and they prayed for me and I repented and I deleted it. I haven't felt an inkling of temptation back in that way, so I'm done. I love you. Let's get out of here. And I honestly thought she might be like a little proud of me, like, wow, look at him. He took care of it. He didn't let it progress to this thing that used, like it used to grip his life. Or, but she was so furious and rightly so and crushed. I'd betrayed her. I went looking elsewhere as a married man. And we spent a long time that night working through things. She very courageously faced some great fears in her life and extended forgiveness to me. And right before we were about to get out of the clear that night when I felt like, okay, this is, like I felt like we're going to make it, you know, I started remembering details and uh, specific things about those few weeks that I didn't tell her initially. And I remembered them and I was like, oh, she'll want to know this, but uh, no, I already confessed enough to her. I told her enough. She's fine. She's generally forgiven me and we're, we're moving on. So I kept silent. And then a couple days go by and I am tormented, haunted. Just I can't stop thinking about it. I feel like crazy. I, I can't like look at her. I'm just trying, like I, I'm going nuts, like, because God had convicted me, and I halfway went there. I still wanted to protect myself a little bit. I didn't want to really be laid bare. And then Valentine's Day, we wake up. She makes me breakfast, and I give her my gift of more confession of sin. And it finally got me. I finally felt the weight of my shame and my sin and what it had done to my wife. 
And I cried. I don't know if I've cried like that ever before. And I don't know how long. I probably was late to work. And and Katie's hand on my back as I'm weeping at her feet, begging her to forgive me. Her hand was the, the grace of God to me. And I finally felt like free. I knew I was forgiven from that sin. I knew it. But I carried shame and hid it to protect myself. In that moment, her extending forgiveness in a, in a real special way freed me from shame that I'd been carrying. And our marriage hasn't been the same since. I wish I could tell you it's been better and it's like been the best year ever. It has been the best year ever. It hasn't been the easiest year ever. There is more vulnerability between us than there ever has been, and that is really freaky. I, I, I prefer I, her to think I'm really awesome and got it all together and don't ever have problems, but that is not the case. But there is intimacy between us that there hasn't been in our six years of marriage. If it were up to me, Jesus would have raptured me to heaven as soon as I put my faith in him. When I was 16 years old, I believe you, God, bam, up in the glory, saved in heaven, in your presence forever. But that's not how it goes. As we heard last week from Bo, he talked about sometimes when you become a Christian, when you put your faith in him, sometimes, oftentimes, things get worse. They don't get better, which is confusing, right? Maybe you got baptized and you got out of that water all psyched up, got prayer, and then realized this life of sin isn't as easy to put behind me as I thought it would. Maybe you put your faith in Jesus only to see your mom get sick or lose your job. It's painful. It's not easy. And that's, that's where we find the Israelites in this story today. The book of Exodus doesn't end with God freeing them from Egypt. I wish it did, and I wish it our life, when we put our faith in Jesus and he saves us, it'd be done. We, oh, that was easy. But we saw last week how God legally made a way for them to leave Egypt. He paid for their freedom, right? Pharaoh said, go. After the 10th plague hit, Pharaoh said, get out of here. You're free. And they left. And they are free. And this is a I think a real clear picture of our salvation experience. God has made a way through Jesus and by faith, through faith, by grace, we're saved. And God sees you, sees me as innocent, as completely righteous in Christ. That's called justification. We stand before God justified. It's a legal term. It's like you're in the courtroom and the evidence is stacked up against you and, you, and Jesus steps in, says, I got this one and we get to leave. Free, no handcuffs. It's justification. The Passover, we saw a picture of what justification can look like for us. But justification isn't the only thing that happens as God redeems us. There's this thing called sanctification. And sanctification is another fancy word that, that really means the process of something being set apart for its intended use, its intended purpose. So um, in the Bible, it typically means to be made holy. When, we're, when you hear sanctification, it's God, the Holy Spirit, making us more like him. And it's a process. And it's a painful process. But it's a glorious process. And I think many Christians hang it up in the process of sanctification because it's just too hard. 
I got enough faith to believe that God loves me and forgives me. I'll receive him, but whoa, this, this hurts. This, get, it's, the whole, it's, it's like the Holy, sometimes we say like, I want more of the Holy Spirit, which I, I understand why we say that, but sanctification is really like the Holy Spirit getting more of us. It, it just progressively getting more and more of our lives. And that hurts a lot of times, at least for me. Maybe you guys got this. So I want us to find ourselves in the Exodus story as we look at what, what's been going on for the Israelites. Maybe you still feel stuck in Egypt looking for a way out. And it's the good news for you is that there is a way out, that God's made a way for you to be justified. But maybe you're, you're justified, saved, know him, but you still feel dirty. You still feel the same. You still feel ashamed. You're still carrying things from Egypt with you. So in Exodus 13, verse 17, Pharaoh let the people go. And God says, this is incredible. God did not lead them, Israel, by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. So he's essentially saying God did not take them right to the promised land. For God said, lest the people, Israel, change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Did you catch what God does with his newly justified people? They're set free from Egypt. What does he do? He doesn't take them right to the promised land. We don't get raptured right away. Instead, if you see on a map, they're walking like, here's the promised land, and then God takes them that way, almost in the opposite direction of the promised land, toward the Red Sea. There was no reason to go that way. It wasn't a shortcut. It wasn't safer. And that is so perplexing for me, that God leads them into the wilderness. He leads you and I into testing, which you can get really ticked about, about God leading you into testing and not making life better. But he doesn't leave us in testing. He goes with them. The Bible says he goes before them in a cloud, a huge cloud to guide them during the day. And then a pillar of fire at night to light their way as they travel in the night. He is very much with them. And they are very much heading into the wilderness. Very much heading to the Red Sea. Not heading directly for the promised land. Maybe you can see yourself in that. Maybe you, you can relate to, to some of that. So they arrive at this massive Red Sea, a dead end, so to speak, and God tells them to camp out and face the sea. Like, camp here, face the ocean. Not bad. But after a while, they probably start wondering, you know, what's with the, the beach camp out, God? What, I mean, I thought we were going to milk and honey land. This doesn't seem like we're on the right track here. The, the, the ocean, most times in the Bible, it, it symbolizes and communicates chaos. It's that which is opposed to God's order. So when God created, it says the spirit hovered over the water and he created out of that chaos and spoke order and made land and birds and people and all kinds of fabulous things out of that chaos. And in the Noah story, the sea comes in judgment against sin and just thrashes the place. And even with Jesus in his, in his day, that his disciples were out on the sea once on the water and they're overcome by a violent storm and they're worried and, you know, scared and Jesus is sleeping and then he calms it. 
Time and time again, we see in the Bible this chaotic reference to the sea. I, I really love surfing. Um, I guess you probably didn't know that about me, but I love surfing. I, I don't love to surf. Um, in fact, I can't. Um, but I, I was just, I was down south this weekend for a class, and I was by myself, so I went to the beach to watch people surf. It's just, it's beautiful. I watched a surf video. It's just like, man, these guys make it look easy. And the reason I can appreciate it is because I've been there. I've tried to surf a couple times, and um, this one time, I literally spent probably two hours trying to paddle out, like just, <laughs> just get out beyond the, the breakers to where you can sit on your board and look cool and, you know, not think of sharks or something, you know. <laughs> and it, it took me like two hours. I was exhausted. I got out there. I wanted to throw up. And it's like, so now I'm supposed to like surf like back in. And so this one time I got thrown from my board. I, I wasn't standing, so don't, don't, don't get too impressed. I, <laughs> I, I was off my board. And it didn't take long for me to re- realize how strong the ocean is. Maybe, if you've ever done that, you realize real quick who's in control. And it's not you. And I am an okay swimmer. I had a floating surfboard on me, and I couldn't get up if, if my life depended on it. I had to wait for the wave to stop pummel, until it was done pummeling me. Then I could swim. The ocean is chaotic. It's strong. And here the Israelites are camping on the edge of it, just set free from Israel, looking out at this massive chaos. And as people, as humans, I think we have this, this internal desire for peace, for order, for things to be right. We don't like when things aren't right. And I'm not talking like you, uh, I like my house a little messy, so I, you know, I, or you like your house neat. No, it's, it's in you. You want things to be right. And the Bible calls that shalom. It's probably the only Hebrew word I know or you know, shalom. And it's often translated peace, which is accurate, but it communicates something much more full than just peace or the absence of conflict. It's not just I have no problems and therefore I have Shalom. No, shalom is this active, creative, expanding wholeness where where God brings order to chaos. And we want that. It's human to want that. So what does that have to do with the Red Sea or the Israelites? I didn't read anything that said shalom in here. But oftentimes in this story, we'll see God talking about the promised land, the milk and honey, the promised land, even though they're years away from it. And he's not mean, he's not being a jerk, he's not like, you know, making them suffer. He wants them to start thinking what it would be like to live free, live in his presence. He's telling them where they're going, even though they're not heading directly for it. So for us, we need to have the end in mind. It'll make, help the, what we're currently in, the chaos that we're in, make a whole lot more sense. And the good news is that the story, the end of the story has been written. We haven't experienced it yet, but the end of the story has been written And we read in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, we read what God does at the end to restore shalom. And it's not in the absence of conflict. It's not like there's just, people are just floating like, oh, look, we floated into peace. No, it's, it's in the midst of chaos that God renews things. And John, the apostle John is getting this revelation and he says, I saw a new heaven And a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth, what we're right in right now had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down from heaven 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. One of my favorite pictures in the Bible. I mean, that's the end that we're heading for. We're heading to a glorious promised land of God's presence, the dwelling place of God with us, like him living with us. Don't forget that because we haven't experienced that yet. And that's what's hard. We want things to be right, but they're not yet right. And that's painful and it's chaotic. Just like as we were singing that, that song of, of um, who a Lord could save themselves. And it, it says, our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace was deeper s- still. Like our shame was chaotic. Your, our shame was massive. And eventually we know that God remakes things. He remakes heaven. He remakes earth. He remakes us. That's a good promise, a glorious promise that we can't forget as we go through this story. So how I relate this then is to, in in talking about our shame, which that song paints a great picture about our shame being deeper than the sea. That's often how it feels. And here's Israel, camped out, staring at chaos. And I think we get sin. I think we understand we do things wrong. God needs to forgive us. That's important. We need to be justified. But shame is tricky. It's much harder to pin down. At least it is for me. Because sometimes it'll show up just like this little weight on your emotions, like depression that just lingers over your house and your, your life. Sometimes it might show up like you overcompensating for things and, and really trying to show people how awesome you are so they don't see the real you. That's shame in, in, in action, and that's so hard to pin down. For me, it, it came out in like halfway confessions, me still trying to protect myself. That song of who, O oh Lord, can save themselves, I was singing, I think I can, a little bit. I might need some help along the way, but I got most of this. That's shame, and it's deep, deeper than the sea. So they're camping here, led by God to this, what looks like a dead end, right? They're running into the ocean or, you know, it's, look at a map. You'll get it. It's the ocean, but it's, I don't know that geographic. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not even try. It's the ocean, but it's, they can cross it. Here we go. Um, so they're looking at this chaotic, overwhelming Red Sea, and then something happens. They can hear this faint kind of rumble, you know, kind of that peaceful, like you, you, when you're at the ocean, it, there's a lot of sound and it's just constant. And they, it's like, oh, the ocean. But then it starts to get a little louder and it starts to sound like it's coming toward them. It's getting louder and louder. And they turn around behind them and imagine the sick feeling that came over that camp when they saw the armies of Egypt charging for them. Pharaoh and all his armies coming after them more mad than ever. Now, there were 600,000 Israelite men in this camp out, not even counting how many women and children. So over a million people, you can't just move real quick and hide behind some rocks. I mean, they were stuck, pinned in against the Red Sea and the charging Egyptian army. 
Behind them, their enemy is mad, wanting to drag them back into the life they had just left. And in front of them is this chaotic unknown of impassable Red Sea. And I think a lot of us have been there. We know that feeling all too well of being camped out between shame and fear, fear and shame, pinned in on all sides, hopeless. I've certainly tasted that. It's terrible. It's awful. We don't want to go back to the life that we hate. We want God to take us into his presence, into his promised land. And those moments when you just feel pressed in, they're really hard to deal with. But look, listen to God's response. Exodus 14, starting in verse 13. God tells Moses to say this. Say, Moses said to the people, fear not. Just remember what's happening here, okay? Armies of Egypt breathing down their neck. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent, pinned in by shame and fear. And God says, fear not, stand firm, don't go anywhere, and see. See me fight for you right now. God leads us into testing. He doesn't leave us in testing, and he fights for us in it. He, he tells Israel, they're trapped. He says, don't worry, don't fear. I'm going to fight for you. You just have to watch. That wouldn't have been such great news to me. I, I would have liked if God said, turn around and fight. You're going to win. Just fight. Go after them. I mean, that I could kind of deal with. But stand and be quiet, that's tough when you got your enemies breathing down your neck. So in a scene of intense drama, that pillar that had guided them out there moves behind them now to protect them from the Egyptian army. And then Moses stands over that chaotic Red Sea and puts his hand out. And God drives back that water with a powerful wind, splits it. And Israel sees their way out. It's not around it, it's through it. They see it. And they, they walk on dry ground where an ocean used to be. And they get to the other side and then the Egyptians come in after them because they want to kill them. And then the Lord vindicates Israel, meaning he wipes out their enemy. He covers the Egyptian army with that sea. And the, the Israelites are standing there on the other side safe and they see bodies of dead Egyptians start floating up onto the shore. Can't, just imagine what that would feel like. We have, to, we have to try to step into their shoes, guys. This, isn't, this is something that happened a long, long time ago, but in a sense, God is still doing this for us today. He's still vindicating us. I mean, what would that feel like? You're pinned in against your addiction and being f- afraid to be drugged back in or pinned in against your fear and not knowing how to get through it, and then God vindicates you. He doesn't just like, get them enough distance, like, okay, Egypt's going to stay over here, you guys stay over there, and they're still alive, but they won't come and get you. I mean, no, he wipes them out. He vindicates Israel. They're they're standing there looking at bodies of of guys that tortured them. And they're like, that, I know that guy. He, He threw my baby son in the Nile. 
And that guy told me I would never get out of slavery. He told me I was worthless. Can you imagine what this would feel like? God miraculously intervening and making a way where there was no way. And this is how we relate to shame. Because there is no way. Our shame is too deep, too widespreading for us to get our way out or fight our way out. We need to be vindicated. And I love what Colossians says, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into a kingdom, a kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. God's taken us out of darkness and placed us in a kingdom of the son he loves. He's, he vindicates us. And this is for us today, guys. Jesus is our release. He is absolutely our justification. He forgives us, but he releases us from the effects and identities that we wear because of that sin. Whether it's sin that you've committed or sin that's been committed against you, you feel ashamed, dirty, wasted, uh, damaged goods, and he vindicates us. He vindicates us on that, that moment where you feel pressed in on all sides. All that is behind you is your past, just Tempting to drag you back. Jesus is your release. And when you, when you feel trapped by fear, you don't know what's in front of you, you can't see any way out of this, Jesus is your release. When you feel stuck in your shame, because if your friends really knew who you were, if they really knew that you struggled with same-sex attraction, or if they knew that you were abused as a kid, they wouldn't love you and they'd leave. That, if that shame is suffocating you, Jesus is your release. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. And behold, the new has come. So who are we going to believe today? We have to figure out who we're going to believe today. Are you going to believe the voices and people and feelings that are telling you you'll always carry this, you'll always be damaged goods, no one will ever love you, you'll always be addicted? Or are we going to believe the voice of the one who hung naked on that cross? Completely exposed. The God who spoke the world with his, his mouth into existence. Hanging there in public on a road as people walk by him and spit on him and revile him. Naked. Talk about shame. And Jesus endured that scorning the shame of the cross. Who are we going to believe? Because Jesus wants to cover your nakedness. He doesn't want to cover your 85% good job and I'm going to fill in the rest. Like, he wants to cover your nakedness. He hung there naked to cover your nakedness, your shame, the things that you don't want anybody to know about. I believe it's really time for us to step out of hiding, step through that Red Sea, so to speak, step through the chaos into God's glorious light. Because when we do that, when Israel did that, they stopped trusting in all the things they had been trusting in prior to that. Nobody else could get them out. Their Egyptian gods weren't going to do it. Their ingenuity was, wasn't going to do it. Moses didn't have a great plan. They needed Jesus to intervene. And I want us to step in and step through and out of that shame, trusting that he covers us, trusting that he will 
supply the grace that we need. I've, I've tasted it. It's really painful and it is so good. It is so good to be covered by Jesus. And I, as I was talking to Katie, I'm telling her, you know, I need to share this story of you, what you and I have walked through. She reminded me, she's like, do you remember the dream I had that night? And I hadn't. And she had a dream that night. The night, so the night, so after I halfway confessed and before I fully confessed, she had a dream that she was standing up here with a bunch of women at church praying that God would release and free men from shame. And that's a very specific thing. And I don't want us to get caught in thinking, well, this is a pornography message. And it's just for men to respond today. That's, that's not true. I just think men need a little more help in responding sometimes, right? We'd like to fix it. That was such a clear, hopeful picture for me that God could actually do something, could actually do the impossible, that, that he could do anything. That's the story of the Red Sea. And I want us to respond. And we're going we're gonna to worship um, and we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who can save us. We're not going to devise a plan, a strategy of how to get ourselves out of shame. That doesn't work. I, I tried it for way too long. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The resurrected Lord that frees us today from all shame. Let, can we stand? I'm going to pray. Jesus, worthy, worthy lamb. I thank you, God, for hanging there on that cross in shame so that I might be covered. God, we're done. We're done hiding. We're done negotiating with you. We're done saving our own selves, Lord. We're done. We're forsaking all saviors, Lord, fixing our eyes on the one who can save us. Teach us to worship you, Lord. Teach us to respond now. Lead us into all truth, God. And I bless these people. I bless this church as they risk, as they trust you against terrible odds, Lord. Shame that has been with them for decades. Oh, for a church that lives free, God. Would you do it here? Would you do the impossible? Would you do what only you can do, Jesus? Fix our eyes on you, God, as best we know how. Thank you for your grace. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantvicelia.com. Until next time. I'm out.